Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and mentorship. Check it out at tkex.org. I am here with Mr. Anthony Lowe, the physio detective. You may remember him from some posts on our group because he posts some really valuable content. And he is an awesome mentor. I would call him one of my personal mentors. And I really value his take, his insights, his experience. And we've got a lot of awesome content to cover here with regards to female athletes and female training with pelvic floor issues and such. So, Anthony, thank you for, for making the time for us. Yeah, no problem, Daniel. Thank you for having me on the podcast. In respect to the, the background that we have here, I, I feel really calm and serene. It's, it's a nice kind of nature break as we're all stuck at home. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It's, um, it's the local park. It's Cars Park. Um, so, you know, it's just nice to have a reminder that we've got other things going on around us that's beautiful. And, um, and while we can, <laughs> we can look at it. So, yeah. That's it. That's it. So, Anthony... Tell us, what, what's your story? Uh, what part of my story do you want, Daniel? Because I'm an old man. I've got a lot of stories. Um, what, what in particular? My work story? My, my, my knowledge journey? What are you after? Yeah, let's go with the, the knowledge journey from, say, past couple of decades. Because I know you've, you've had changes in your, in your stance and your narratives and your practice. So it'd be awesome to hear. Yeah, no worries. So I started, um, well, I did go through school. I'm just taking it a couple of decades further. I did start in school and made my way through somehow into a physiotherapy undergrad degree. I had no idea I wanted to do physio. Uh, a friend of mine was doing it. Um, so I did it too. And um, turned out I'm okay at it. So, um, so that's how I got started in physio. Somehow made it through physio. I, um, I nearly failed the first two years. Um, and so my parents made me get a sleep study cause they thought I had sleep apnea. Uh, and I didn't have sleep apnea at the time. I actually have narcolepsy, which explained why I kept falling asleep in lectures. And it's hard to study when you're sleeping every time you sit down and study. So <laughs> solved that problem and got onto work. And once I was at work, it wasn't really a problem because, you know, in the hospital system, you're just moving all the time in private practice every half an hour, every hour you're changing. So, you know, it's not really a problem and I don't have to sit there and study, right? Like I'm interacting with, with somebody. So, uh, not a problem at all. Um, and so then I was in the hospital system and there was a patient who said to me, look, why do you press on my back? And I said, oh, they're back mobilizations. Okay. What are they doing? And I went, you know what, I can give you the answer that I was told, which is I'm gliding the joints and all this other stuff and it's freeing up whatever it is that's restricting you. And I went, I'm a first year, I'm just going to go ask someone else. So I started asking other people and they all gave me the same sort of wishy-washy answer. Like, I don't know, you, you mobilize it. It's like, it's what we do. And so then it came to a point where it's like, you know what, I, I'm going to need to know more. Um, I'm going to need to know, I need, I need a better reason. I can't do this without having a better reason. And so, um, you know, that's when I started my continuing education journey and, um, Kim Robinson and Toby Hall with, um, their manual concepts was how I started. So into the Mulligan way and, you know, I did their eight day course and, all sorts of stuff. And from there I did muscle energy and I've done, so I've done Maitland, Mulligan, muscle energy, um, Diane Lee stuff, LJ Lee stuff. Um, oh, Steve Saunders, Trish Wisby. Like I've done a lot of different things. Um, you know, Peter O'Sullivan stuff, 2005, I was on his course. Um, you know, there's a lot of different things that I've done over the years and I know, and I just spent a lot of money over the years on continuing education and then pursued a master's degree um, while running two practices and all sorts of fun stuff. So uh, it got to a point where 
I was doing my specialization training, which by the way is like the most painful and expensive reaming that I've ever had. Um, and I think the best way to describe that is that they weren't ready for me and I wasn't ready for them. I think these days it would be a lot easier. Um, but at the time it just sucked. And so I'd sold my practices um, and I had the time and space to work and to study and to watch a lot of movies and recover from working a lot of hours a week. And um, in the end, I began to challenge beliefs. I started getting on Facebook. Um, you know, I, I was I was becoming quite well known in the CrossFit world. I was getting well known um, in the women's health world. And, and so that's how that all started as, as well as reframing my whole uh, view on what I did. And I'm, I'm really good at what I do. I don't have any qualms in telling people that I'm, I was, I can hang with the best of them without any shadow of a doubt. Um, but I couldn't get everybody better and people were getting better when they shouldn't be getting better and people weren't getting better when they should have been getting better. And for somebody who has a perfectionist type of drive, that's two things with me. Number one, I procrastinate because it's just never good enough. And number two, like I've got to be the best. Um, and so even though not everybody, even though most people were getting better and like secondary referrals, man, like people sending people to me, sending them away better. Um, that was the kind of model that I was in structural, uh, postural, structural, biomechanical. I can, I can still pick all the minutia that you want, that, that you might want me to correct. And I can still do it because it's just, it's bred into me. It's baked in. Um, and so I had to reframe that and it took three years and, um, I suppose I started in 2012, I started in 2012 and, um, and spent, you know, a year, two years, maybe 2000, uh, 2013, I think would be fairer to say. Um, and, and then at the end of 2013, I had a Twitter argument with Greg Lehman. Greg Lehman. And, um, that was funny because I just remember how upset I was and, uh, how upset I got. And so, you know, I'm furiously typing and Twitter's not big enough. So I'm typing on notes and screenshotting that and posting the picture because that's how we were having our debate. And then it moved into different realms like Facebook and, and a website, um, group, you know, back when we had those sorts of things. And, um, you know, it, it was weird. And I found the people, Greg was really good actually, but most of the people were like, look, read this post. It's got 200 comments and, and people are fighting on that. And it's like, what am I supposed to get from this? Because I'm not learning. Um, and it wasn't so simple. You know, it wasn't so simple. They say that it was simple and they're saying, this is not simple. Um, and so, I had to, I had to just try and figure it out on my own. I had to simplify. I, um, I, I kept challenging what I believed and I was working from a gym at the time. So I was, I had the time in that first year, you know, I was like three people a day type stuff, like keeping it so, so low compared to like the 80 that I was doing a week. I'm now down to three a day, four a day. And just nice and cruisy, watched a movie every day, you know, all that sort of stuff. Just caught up on the 12, 13 years of life that I'd missed out on. And, um, and what was interesting was that I would, I had the time and space to think about what I was doing instead of rushing one patient to the next. And, and so then I had to reframe everything and it was painful, man. Like the sunk cost fallacy is real. Um, I'd invested a lot of money into believing these things and, and, and like, you know, personal relationships, being able to separate that out and say, I can still be friends with the people that I call my mentors and I don't have to believe what they say. And that was something that was really important. And in that Twitter argument, the, the watershed moment for me, and literally it was visceral. I felt it through my body. 
I, I, I think in exasperation, I said something like, so are you saying that I didn't fix all these people? We were talking about thoracic rings, right? Are you saying that I didn't fix all these people? And he goes, no, I'm not saying that at all. Um, you know, I'm saying that, that you helped them or they got better for a reason that was different to what you're saying. And that to me just depersonalized it. And like, I just felt all my defenses drop and that was it. Um, and so that's why, you know, um, that's why I always do reference Greg because without that conversation and that interaction, and to be honest, his patience, this thing went on for days and he, you know, he persisted. He didn't drop off. He didn't go, ah, oh, whatever, and just leave me alone. Like he hung in there. And, um, and that's why I think you see me hang in there with some people too, when most people are writing people off, it's like, no, because if they're on the same journey, we are, and they're just somewhere else on that journey, it doesn't matter. They're facing the goal. And I remember what it was like to be facing the goal because I was trying to do all the right things. I was facing the goal and I was trying to head there. And we were just disagreeing on the on the reasons why I was at where I was on that journey. That's what we were doing. But I was still heading there. And um, and so that's why I have a lot of patience for people. Because if Greg didn't have that patience with me, I don't know where I'd be today. Um, and I'm sure that I would be still here. But it would look different and it will feel different. And maybe I wouldn't be as patient with people. And I wouldn't be as understanding. And I wouldn't be as generous um, you know, Greg is a very generous man, uh, very smart, way smarter than me. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's that journey there and then distilling it. Cause then I started teaching, I, I began teaching seminars, um, in 2013 and they've just evolved to what I have today. And people were asking for summaries and, you know, what's your method? And it's like, I don't have a method. I, I interact with people. Like I just sit there and they tell me what to do and I do it. Um, and so then I had to find some structure and think about my thinking and think about what I'm doing and why, what, why I'm doing, why am I doing what I'm doing and why is it working? And so I had the time and space to do that. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much my journey. So you know, the journey hasn't stopped. I can, I'm continuing evolve. I'm continuing to evolve. I do get concerned sometimes that it's harder to find things to challenge, uh, in myself. So I need people to challenge me on, on things and I'm happy to be called out. Um, you know, but yeah, it's, it's just a daily journey. And, and I think if I keep my eyes on the prize, which is interacting with people and letting them guide me so that I can guide them um, so that we can do it together, then I feel like I'm doing an okay job. That's awesome. And Greg was here just uh, this, this year, wasn't it? Yeah. So did Earlier you, this year. Yeah. Did you have a, a chat, a debrief in person with, about that situation since 2013? Oh, yeah. We, we've talked about that years ago. Um, and yeah. He remembers. <laughs> That's awesome. And it's, it's a really good point as well to have the, the patience and the compassion for people on their own journeys. And we all have the common goal of wanting to help people, wanting people to help themselves. We just have different avenues and ways around it. So really, really useful reflection. Yeah. And like, I mean, the thing that I noticed, because I work a lot, in women's health, right? So most of the practitioners that I know are actually women. Um, and a lot of the messaging that's coming out is, is very testosterone driven, to be honest. Um, and it turns, it turns people off. They don't like the style. They agree with the stuff, but they won't share it because how it's coming across, how it lands, doesn't suit. So you don't see them share that stuff as much, which is really sad, right? Which is why I do, I do appreciate 
that style of communication and it suits, but I'm seeing so much trashing of people who disagree. Like, you know, people think that I'm trashing people like in, um, I got into a, into a bit of a Facebook stoush on, on the APA musculoskeletal group. And the reason why is because, um, I said, look, the government's putting the decision on us. Here's my argument. We are not essential. I think we should, I think we should close the doors and I understand the maths and I understand the issues. I understand that financially this could be ruinous for you, but I don't know. I grew up in a way that said for the greater good, we make sacrifices, which is what, what I do. So that's just what I do and that's okay. And I completely understand why other people choose different things. Um, and so, you know, people are trying to convince me that somebody who's got a bad back, it's essential that they should see us as a physio. And it's like, I, what did people do before us? It's not essential, right? People, people will be able to get up and go. And on average, most of them will be fine in six weeks. Like, how essential are we? What, what are we saying is essential? What's the definition of essential? And, you know, and yet because people put their beliefs, their identity into their beliefs, they, they feel personally attacked. That's what I did. I felt like Greg was attacking me, but he wasn't, he was attacking the ideas, the reasoning that I had behind what I was doing. He wasn't attacking me. He wasn't even attacking what I was doing. Um, you know, and once you can separate your identity from the things that you have and you do and you believe, then life becomes a lot easier to change those things. So, you know, I was talking to Julie Granger and I love the way that she puts it. She says, uh, if, if you got locked in syndrome for whatever reason, you had an accident and you're locked in, you couldn't interact with the outside world you are still deserving of love, caring, and kindness. You are still worthy. Therefore, what you have, what you do, what you believe doesn't change that. Therefore, we choose to do these things. I choose to be a physiotherapist. I choose to do manual therapy. I choose to use exercise. I choose to have a house. I choose to have kids, you know, these are not things that define me. I am separate to that because heaven forbid, if I lose my three children, I'm no longer a parent. And if that is my identity, like I'm going to go downhill. Like who am I parenting if I don't have kids anymore? Right. Or if my kids disown me, like I'm shattered because if my identity is in being a parent, then I am a parent, then suddenly I'm vulnerable to that. Um, Interesting. It's the, and it's the same of, with physio, yeah, right? Fusing away, defusing from the concept so that if some, if shit happens and we can swear as well, by the way, in case you didn't, cool. you know, uh, if, if stuff happens, shit happens and we aren't able to provide the service that we deem is us is valuable, then we feel like, we might as well not practice at all, or there's like an all or nothing situation where it's crazy, hmm. right? And it's so crazy because uh, at the moment, the way that it is, is that for some people, the way I see it, and it may not be true. If, if remote consults, if online consultations are able to help people just as effectively as them coming to see us, why should I bother having a clinic? And that existential crisis, that cognitive dissonance is too much for some people. And so it's just easier to argue that it's essential that they see us in person, right? Because otherwise everything, the whole house of cards topples over because you're taking out that foundational layer. Whereas if you, and so if you see yourself as a healer, a fixer, a, a body mechanic, somebody who's going to uh, help them. They need you to identify the problems so that you can solve their problems. Then yeah, this is a massive existential threat. 
And However, also for, for you... exercise professionals, just quickly, so not only the manual professionals, but the exercise-based, biased uh, movement professionals, we can also have that kind of fusion where we need a gym or we need equipment or we need hands-on coaching. Yeah, I need to I need to change the alignment. I've got to show them people are motor morons. They don't have any body awareness. You know, yes, it is easier. Yes, it is more efficient. Yes, having people come to me means that I can see more people in a day and service the community better than running around and seeing people at home or sitting here doing telehealth because, to be honest, uh, online consultations just take longer. You have to talk it through. You can't just move people into the position that you want. You've got to talk them into the position that you want. Um, so everything just takes longer, but it doesn't mean it's not effective. It just means it takes longer, right? And there's a difference. So if we can get, if we can get people around to that way of thinking that we're actually like, I mean, that's all the burnout, right? People are just taking on this responsibility of having to heal people and, oh, you know, what a way to load people up and have difficulty sleeping. It's, it's not your problem. Your job is to do the best job you can. And that is to facilitate um, through, uh, through a, a biopsychosocial approach, dealing with their physical, biological, biomechanical problems, as well as the psychological and the context that's going on around them. And we know, we know that what we do is so little compared to what they do, their context. Well, that's why it's so important. Because if it was purely biomechanical, we would have solved this problem long time ago, long time ago. Like Yander, if Yander was right, like, why isn't all this stuff better? Right? Exactly. Exactly. And it, it's, that's really good uh, insights into maybe it's more the, the changing the mindset around how someone practices in general that will help them nudge them towards at least trying telehealth. Cause I feel like some people are a bit intimidated and they feel like they can't, you know, provide that service. So apart from maybe having the time to reflect on the way we practice, what's, what, what are some other kind of first initial steps advice that you would, you would give for clinicians who are feeling a little bit overwhelmed and a bit intimidated by entering the world of telehealth look just do it you know when you saw your first patient you didn't go to the receptionist oh no 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 i don't feel ready yet i don't feel ready just cancel them i'll see how i feel for the next patient like you just got to do it so step into it and if you want to practice then call up a friend and take them through exercise like you don't even have to do a consult right just say, I want to get better at telling you what to do without putting you in that position and just practice, um, get, get used to the angles, get used to what it's like with a laptop versus a phone. I don't, I don't do my online consultations unless they've got a phone. Um, the reason why is because I need the person holding the phone to move to different angles so that I can see what I need to see on the angles that I'm used to seeing them. And I just tell the camera person what to do. Um, whereas if we're just doing a follow-up and they don't have to show me anything, well, then we can do this on a laptop. But generally the stuff that I, that they want me to help with involves movement. So we move. Um, yeah. And the first yeah. part is just get experience, experiential just learning. Just do it. Yeah. Just take the step. You took the step when you first, whatever profession you are, you took a step and you started seeing people. And you, so you know, just through intuitive experience and watching other people do it, that once you get started, it becomes easier and easier. And, you know, and then you're going to get a diagnosis that you hear about before they come in the door. And, and it's like, oh, I've never worked with this person before. And those old feelings come back up. And sometimes you can deal with it. And sometimes you go off and you look up on Google. And then, you know, you start and say, like, ah, the management's not that different, right? And so then you get experience again. And really, it's a desensitization of the nervous system is what we're doing by exposing you to lots of experience with working with different types of conditions. You feel a lot more comfortable and the threshold 
to tip you over into stress, fear, anxiety, depression, whatever it is, just becomes a lot higher. And that's why experienced clinicians look calm when something complex walks in the door, because we look at it and we just go, eh, I saw 10 of those in the last month. Okay, here we go. Whereas somebody who doesn't see it at all, it's the first time, it's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I don't know where to start. And, you know. Awesome. I think, I think we've said all the advice that is necessary for people to, to make that first step. And a quick shout out as well to your podcast, Anthony, with Marika Hart, the Women's Health Podcast. You guys have put out some awesome content. So if anyone is looking to move on to telehealth, please look out and reach out to, to Anthony. So just moving yeah, on. Yeah, we've to, got yes, go on, we've got sorry. lots of content on there. We've got lots of um, we've got lots of how tos as well as so not just the technical part of setting it up, but we've also got the assessment part and talking about how we assess online so that you can get a an idea of um, what's possible. And I'm putting an example up um, of a telehealth diastasis consult that I did. Um, with somebody so just as an example um for you awesome. to use and where can we find that in the facebook yep that's going to be on the women's health podcast website and i'll put it on my patient consultations um playlist on youtube under the physio detective so, yeah. awesome awesome definitely going to check that out so moving on to uh pelvic health pelvic floor issues and specifically women's health, uh, women's physio issues. So what are, if we were to have some ideas of some of the misconceptions that you've come across with your time teaching um, and educating, what are some of the misconceptions when it comes to, to pelvic floor issues? Ah, misconceptions for, about pelvic floor issues. There's many. Um, who's your audience primarily? We'll have physios, exercise physiologists, clinicians. Okay. And Look, one of the biggest, one of the biggest misconceptions is, um, you have to do isolated pelvic floor exercises and until you get them right, you can't do anything else. I'd say that that's a misconception, um, that the whole core system has to be right before you can do things. Yeah. They walked in the door. So just because they can't isolate their multifidus with their TA doesn't mean that they're not functional. It just means that they can't do that party trick, an important party trick, but they can't do that party trick. And why are we teaching them a party trick? Because it's just variation. It's just another way of getting them to focus on something that's not associated with their symptoms or their problem, changing their brain maps, um, teaching them something novel, and being able to do something different in a way that's not associated with their pain or symptoms. And then all of a sudden things are changing. We do it for long enough, natural recovery occurs and we're back to relative normal. Um, you know, and there are some really strong biological problems that you can't solve. For example, detachment of the pelvic floor off the pubic symphysis. The out physio ain't going to fix that, but we can help people with that, you know, they get a perineal tear through childbirth and it goes through into the anal sphincter. Um, and now they have, uh, it's, it's just easier to have fecal incontinence. Well, you getting them to relax that pelvic floor ain't going to be the thing that they're naturally going to do because nobody likes to, to crap themselves. So, you know, it really is a biopsychosocial approach. So other misconceptions about the core and the pelvic floor is that uh, if your pelvic floor is weak, you can't do anything. And it's like, well, is it truly weak? Um, and even if it is truly weak, whose body is it? We give the information, right? So if we give the information and they make a choice that's informed, well, then that to me is self-efficacy. That to me is the person taking responsibility for their own decisions and their own health care, taking in information and then making a decision based on that. And if they do the things that you don't agree with, because you say, listen, my recommendation is that you do this, but I need you to tell me if you decide not to follow that, 
because I'm going to help you as best I can to support you. I'd rather you just tell me and I'm not going to get upset at you. It's your body. It's your choice. It's your decision. And I'm going to support you no matter what you do. And people do it, you know. And for those of you who are thinking, oh, you know, yeah, I don't do that. And it's like, yeah, we do all the time. You've got an ankle sprain. It's a grade two. If you go out and you tear that completely, you're going to need an, uh, a reconstruction as well as you might. So you might, uh, you might just knock off the rest of that ligament and dislocate or and do something worse or add a fracture to that as well. Um, and they go, yeah, okay, strap me up, doc. Send me out to play. Let's go. It's the same thing, right? And so what are we doing? We... Like they're making the choices, they're making the decision. Um, and so, you know, how do you tell somebody, oh, you know, your core is so weak that you really shouldn't be picking up more than two kilos. Um, they just gave birth to something that was like three and a half kilos on average naked. And then you put clothes on them and then you put them in a carrier. And then you put them in the car because we know that putting carriers in the car is the most comfortable and easiest thing to do. And then you've got to pack up the pram and throw that in the back of the SUV because you're five foot two and your husband likes the biggest SUV possible. And you've, you're throwing this thing up at like, you know, well above waist height and it's heavy. Like what, what's happening right now? And so, I, I would rather that we train people for what they have to deal with because under pressure, under stress, nobody rises to the occasion. They fall to the level of their training. So if you do not prepare people for the loading that's coming, you're actually doing a disservice to people because they're going to go out there and they're not going to be able to turn on their core while they run to save their toddler from crossing the road without looking and you're trying to hold on to a baby without, you know, deviating from the ideal posture. So all of these alignment myths, pelvic floor myths, you know, uh, if you're leaking, if you're leaking, you shouldn't do any impact exercise. Okay, why not? Like, whose call is it? Are they actually doing damage? If, if they continue to exercise and they leak, are they making things worse? We don't have any evidence that that's true. I, we're unlikely to get evidence of that because it won't pass ethics, IRB. But um, yeah, like what's happening? You're generating pressure that overcomes uh, the mid-urethral closing pressure and you leak. That's it. And so, you know, isn't that up to the person? If the person doesn't want to leak and they're absolutely mortified of leaking... Well, then yeah we're definitely going to help that and i think that that's a great thing to do and we should be doing that but just because they leak doesn't mean that they're damaging themselves for the rest of their life like somebody who's leaking on double unders we should stop them from doing double unders okay why because they're leaking it's like well the shouldn't the first question be is this a problem for you right is this a problem for you no I leak a few drops and I, I want to do double unders. I want to get better at it. I'm just going to keep doing it. Okay. Let's move on. Right. As opposed to treating people like our children, nagging them, you know, being, being their parent, this patronizing, um, patriarchal way that we deal with our, our clients, they're people who have, asked for our opinion they've engaged us as consultants they haven't bought a parent for the day to chide them and to get mad at them yeah have you done your exercises today daniel yeah you know it's been a busy week oh come on daniel like seriously you've got to make the time mate come on get like do you watch tv daniel uh, yeah Come on, you can do your exercises when you're watching TV. What about in the ad breaks? These are all helpful things, yes. But do they need you to get on their case? Maybe it's it's the fact that sitting on the couch doing nothing 
it's because they're so stressed out that that's how they're relaxing right now. And then you want to come and put another rock on their load. Why do you think they're not doing the exercise? They don't have room to, and that's okay. And you say, okay, what, what, what are some of the things that we've talked about in the past about what's going, what's going on and to achieve your goals? Well, look, I know the exercises are important. It's just that every time I go to do them, like, I just, I just, I'm not feeling it, man. So, okay. Well, that's my fault because obviously we haven't given you something that, that really works for you. So what do you feel like you could do? And I'm just going to ask you to choose something that you can do for one minute only. And they, they, they choose something. I, I reckon I could do 10 squats. You know what? I'll take 10 squats because that's 10 more than what you've done this week. All right. So you're not going to get mad at me. Why should I get mad at you? Because, you know, we've already discussed that you need to get stronger because you want to stand up and do a whole bunch of things. Um, sorry about that printer noise. Can you print out there, please? Um, the, the difficulty is that um, if you don't get stronger in your legs, then you're going to have difficulty achieving those goals. And so you're going to have problems for longer, which I am more than happy to take your money to supervise you until you achieve your goals, as we discussed. Yeah, now that you put it that way, it's probably easier if I just do some exercise, 10 squats, we'll get started. Like, you know, little things like that. And obviously, you, you play the money card with the people that it's going to work on. You've already assessed, you know, you don't, you don't play that card with everybody. It's just the people that are going to be motivated by that. Absolutely. I think that's a great lesson in, in exercise prescription rather than just prescribing something like we are the authority figure over their lives. It's a yeah. collaborative effort. And the ones that they, the exercises and movements that they enjoy and they feel the most benefit and that works with their schedule will likely be done. So that's, that's really, really useful. And just going back to, to the, the idea that people or we can, perhaps vilify the, the urination or the, the kind of um, the pelvic floor issues ourselves as healthcare professionals, what would you say? How should we offer our help, but also be aware of not selling fear? Yeah. You know, it's okay to define things as problems and we can just talk about the stats, right? One in three to one in five women who exercise will leak. This is what happens. And if you're one of those people, there's help available for you. It doesn't have to be that way necessarily. And we can use exercise and movement to help you be able to do the things that you want to do without leaking. Like it's just stating facts, right? Um, pelvic organ prolapse. You have pelvic organ prolapse. We know that one in three up to one in two women will have some degree of prolapse and there's something you can do about that. We can keep you exercising. You don't have to give up the things that you love. It might look different. It might look the same, but you might have other strategies that you don't know about right now that we can use to help you maintain your activity, keep you progressing towards your goals and do so in a way so that you understand what the risks are so that you decide what you're going to do with what, with, uh, with your own body and your own goals and what you want to do. And those are different variations of say, now we can use more of the biomechanical postures, different body positions, different breathing strategies. And that's how we can kind of modify it according to, to what they want to do. Yeah. And we can ask questions, right? We can ask questions about what's going on and asking questions is the key. You know, why is it that, um, why is it that somebody who, I don't know, um, I look a classic that I see a lot of is people who change careers, right? And it happens a lot to nurses. Nurses are known 
in the research to have a higher risk of developing back problems. So I cannot tell you how many nurses I've seen over the years go into management, go into diabetes education, go into non-physical work um, because they can't keep bending over and, and tending to patients because they've got back pain that they can't manage. It's commonly known and it's in the research. Right. So why is that? Right. Why is it that they're changing their job? Um, and so I think it would be highly arrogant of me to come along and and uh, and say, OK, you've got a weak core. OK. And so that's why you've got back pain. It's like, yeah, maybe. Oh, you can't hold a plank for two minutes. It's like, yeah, when as a nurse am I going to do that? right? When, when do I have to hold a plank for two minutes? I'm not hovering over a patient. We cut that out years ago. Um, you know, that sort of thing is just crazy. Um, and so listening to them and asking questions and, and, you know, sometimes, sometimes it is fear. I've, I had somebody, I had to talk off the ledge, not talk off the ledge. Um, but basically she was going down a spiral because she couldn't, get rid of her neck pain. Um, and she had an elastic band on the back of her head uh, from something that she had to wear. And she thinks that it's cutting off her circulation and gave her pain. It's like, okay. Like, in my head, I'm thinking that's really unreasonable, right? It's like wearing a, an oxygen mask type thing. Do you know what I mean? That, that's not cutting off her circulation. That's not giving her pins and needles. It's not giving her numbness. And you know what? The anti-inflammatories and the heavy painkillers she was on wasn't changing the pain. Um, and she and she describes a, a, a fear of movement. And she describes trying to maintain the right alignment. And she describes that when she tries to do the right things, it makes it worse. I'm going to listen to that. Because if I try to keep giving her those things, if I try and make her move into those areas, there could be a problem, all right? And so 85% of low back pain is nonspecific. Um, pelvic floor problems are the same sort of thing. One in two people are gonna leak, one in two people, uh, up to one in two people are gonna have pelvic organ prolapse. Up to one in three people are gonna have pelvic pain of some sort through their life. But these are the sorts of things that we're seeing. Now, if I, didn't listen carefully and if I didn't do my job properly I'm going to miss the few percent where actually that was a canal stenosis and I told I told that story right and I didn't miss I didn't miss that foraminal stenosis I was trying my best to get her through without surgery and in the end we couldn't do it and I saw her like seven times in 12 months um you know it's not as if I was over-servicing her. She saw, the e she saw the EP more times than she saw me. Uh, we tried exercise for six months uh, with the EP. It just is what it is. Sometimes um, it is. And so for her, what was really important is that I gave her the reassurance that it's okay. You've done your best. You've, uh, you know... We have to send you for the surgical consult because things aren't changing and you have this very real problem here. Even though we know that people can have narrowed foraminal, um, you know, openings and not have any symptoms, we'd done a whole bunch of things and she, you know, she'd lost her husband, she'd had a fall, it was only a small fall and yet we couldn't resolve it. And she needed the surgery and, you know, she's doing okay. She's got to move more because of COVID. So she's an older lady. It's degeneration of the, of the lumbar spine, which is normal. It just happens to be causing a structural problem. We tried to do everything we could around it. Psychology referral, EP referral. I wasn't doing manual therapy. I was trying to calm the nervous system down, um, coping strategies, advice getting her through her grief, all of this, all at the same time. Yeah. You know, and, and, and if I've got somebody who tells me that they've got, uh, you know, that 
they're really worried about their pelvic floor and I say, look, you know, you're just, you're just worried about that. Um, I think you're sensitive and that's why you think your prolapse symptoms are the way they are. Come on, lift this thing, lift this thing. I'm really worried. I don't like how it feels. Oh, come on. You can do it. You can do it. You know, maybe they actually had super mild quarter equina symptoms. What if I actually flared up their quarter equina thing that was starting, you know, a little bit of back pain, minor, minor altered sensation. Uh, but you know, feeling that, um, I know a doctor, for example, who was in the emergency department, somebody came in with back pain. So he did a proper assessment said, look, it seems like you've, you've done a disc, um, and you know, everything looks okay. So here's some medication and here's advice on moving and walking. And if it gets worse, you need to represent to emergency again. So anyway, he represented later that day. Um, and he was worse and he, he did have a disc and he developed quarter equina symptoms. Um, and he needed to go in for surgery, decompression, all the rest of it. Um, you know, that's a specific low back problem. That is something that needs, that is an emergency situation that needs medical intervention. And this doctor was, uh, reviewed because, you know, he went to a different hospital. And so this doctor was called up. What did you do? Why did you do it? Blah, 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 blah. And the only thing they could pick on him was he didn't do a PR. Uh, uh, he didn't stick his finger in the guy's anus to see if he had muscle tone that was normal there, even though he had no reports of, um, any incontinence at all. That was the only thing that he got, uh, hold over the coals on. So if you see this doctor in emergency, uh, and he's not in emergency anymore, but everybody after that, who came in for back pain, got a finger up the bum, right? Because what did he learn? He learned that he's going to get in trouble for things that he did everything right. There was no indication of quarter equina involvement, right? So all of that to say, you've got to listen. You've got to understand. You've got to, to really think about what you're doing. And it's not about what you think. It's not about what point you're trying to make. It's not about the fact that, oh, I saw... I saw Anthony do this. I saw Daniel do that. I saw Peter O'Sullivan do this and, and try replicate that. Like you've got to deal with the person in front of you. Um, you know, I went on a course and this is what we were told to do. So this is what we do. No. And so how does that relate to the pelvic floor? The pelvic floor is just another mus a group of muscles, just like everywhere else in the body. You've got to be listening as to why things might be different. I don't know. I just went on a long rambling track, but I just wanted to say, please be careful out there. I hear too many trainers and EPs, to be honest, massage therapists, people who aren't licensed to diagnose, diagnosing people and telling people what's wrong with them. And, and this is what you have to do. Like, wow, there's yeah. just yeah. be careful out there. And it's a really good, valuable point for the subjective and the value of the subjective and listening, especially in this age of where we're going to yeah. be going through telehealth more than likely in the coming weeks, whether we like it or not, it sounds like. So just a, a couple of questions. I respect your time. If that's okay with you, Anthony, of course I've got, I've got lots of time. Awesome. So the, the bracing, so I, we hear a lot of in the, in the resistance training world, the powerlifting world of um, yep. kind of the dangers of bracing too much or bracing not enough. So under heavy liftings, uh, in, in heavy lifting for full females with pelvic floor issues or females even in general, what would you say to, in terms of um, movement strategies and, and bracing, is it necessary for women with pelvic floor issues or is it kind of overhyped? Can you define bracing? Yeah. So the idea of core contracture or maybe reducing intra abdominal pressure in order to, to let the, pelvic floor kind of calm down, reduce the load on the pelvic floor. All right. So this one's a tricky one, right? Number one, 
under high pressure, things are going to stretch. Um, you keep doing that, they're going to adapt. Because you load them, they're going to adapt. How they're going to adapt is a function of load, the amount of time under tension, a whole bunch of other things, repetition, recovery time, nutrition, stress. Like there's a whole bunch of things that go on. That's number one. Number two, if we're talking about female athletes, hormonal cycles play a role. Are they on IVF treatment? Are they, where are they in their, in their ovulation cycle? Are they on treatment for, um, for a transition to, to becoming a woman? Um, you know, so all of these things play a role. And so you've got to think about them. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, your body is designed to defend itself. So it will contract. You don't have to pre-contract. It will contract, right? Now, if you're not ready for it, then yeah, being contracted early might help. But that doesn't mean that you have to be contracted before you do it. Like if I, if I gave you a 60 kilo squat, your squat is bigger than 60 kilos, right? If I gave you a 60 kilo squat, you know what 60 kilos feels like. It feels easy. You'd be able to do it without a warm up, and you could just do it because you know it. You can feel it. You've done it before. It's probably part of your warm up set. If you start at 60 or higher, it's not even going to be a thing to think about because of experience. And if experience has taught you that you've got to be prepared, well, then you might carry that experience, which isn't actually helpful, in. But again, it's listening, right? So, so I'll listen and I'll say, tell me about your squat. You, you're telling me that you haven't progressed your squat. Tell me how a session goes. What was your last session? I had five by five at 85%. And so um, I warmed up and I worked up to it. And then I did my five by five. Okay, cool. How did you feel when you got to the first set at your working percentage? How did you feel? He goes, yeah, I felt warmed up. I warmed up on just the bar only. I did all my activation work and I did, you know, the band work to get my glued firing, glute mead firing and all the rest of it. Um, and then uh, I, I worked up in weight until I got to 85% and then I started my squats. Okay. How did you feel though when you started? Like how did it go from there? It's like, uh, you know, I really struggle to finish set four and five. Like I'm waiting a long time to recover. In fact, by the time I get to the first working set, particularly if it's heavy, I'm already smashed. Like I'm already tired by the time I get there. And, and I had enough sleep and I had, and I had food. It's not like I hadn't had those things. Like if I'm hearing that, I'm hearing they're bracing for everything, right? And they're getting tired before they get to their working set. That's a problem. Whereas there are other people that they can do that and they can keep going, but then they're your non-specific joint pain people. So what hurts, Daniel, when you, when you squat? Ah, oh, both knees hurt. Oh, show me where. Everywhere. Okay. And, and what about in your back? Does it hurt anywhere in particular? No, it's just like the whole thing, right? I'm hearing a compression story, right? Everything hurts. There's no one structure that's, that's particularly injured in one area. I'm hearing a story of, I'm just squishing the shit out of everything and it's hurting. It's like, yeah, okay. I heard that. Let's just put you at 185 kilos. And I just want you to relax as much as you can while keeping the form that you want to do, not contracting as hard as you can to do the form you, th you think you should. And like people do all sorts of amazing things. Um, you know, there's one guy, Lindsay Beister on the Gold Coast is a weightlifting coach. There's video of him on Instagram when I, you know, when he came to the seminar. And I told him about this and for a weightlifting coach who teaches people how to brace, um, it, it can be really difficult. 
but he went and did a triple at 200 or 201 and he hadn't cracked 200 for months before because of his knee pain and he was able to easily do three by 200 kilo back squats like you know and he hadn't been training it why because too much compression is actually putting the brakes on a ferrari like why would you put the brakes on a ferrari and try to go down the straight as fast as you can it just doesn't seem to make sense you apply the brakes when you need it you put the accelerator on when you need it and if you do them at times which are not ideal things can end up with less than optimal results so Great. so bracing for women simple just do what you need to do to maintain what you need to maintain with the least amount of tension use attention for task and if you find that it's difficult to do that just do something different and uh and you'll get there you'll know great awesome rather than just jumping straight into contract everything yeah. brace the right muscles otherwise you're gonna leak yeah all of that stuff you know is is not particularly helpful teaching people to brace differently is helpful belts or no belts you know i go through a whole discussion on that but the bottom line is that um uh, don't pull the belt as tight as you can and blow through the belt. Don't brace through the belt. Brace to the belt if you're going to do that. Um, the other things to do with bracing are um, being able to um, being able to allow the adaptation time to occur, particularly for novice lifters. If they haven't had or, or anybody changing their technique, if they haven't had that time, just take it slow, let the body adapt. It doesn't adapt as quickly as muscles because it's, you know, so just imagine it takes 10 times as long to adapt. Um, so give them time to adapt and let them change slowly. Um, and, and monitor, monitor, monitor. Awesome. Very practical and useful, useful advice for all of us. So the one, other issue that we come across as EPs, as physios would be DRAM. So diastasis recti. What? Mm. So there's a few kind of maybe schools of thoughts that I've come across and I'm sure you've come across with starting from kind of the supine um, specific core activations and kind of avoid all crunches, avoid kind of flexion, loaded flexion. Um, and there is, there is some fear with patients that come in and, you know, not wanting to make make it worse for perhaps both performance and aesthetic reasons. So looking at some of perhaps the misconceptions that you've come across when it comes to DRAM, Anthony. Yeah. First of all, remember everybody gets something, right? So don't make a big deal of it. That's number one. Number two, why are we just looking at the linear alba? If the linear alba is stretched, the peritoneum is stretched. The muscular wall has stretched. Um, you know, all all the fascia around each of the muscles has stretched. Um, so it's not just about the linear alba, because you can close that sucker up, and if you don't address the fact that the abdominal wall itself has distended, then you're still going to look pregnant, even though that diastasis is not there anymore. So it's not just about that. And again, people are not defined by their diagnosis. So if they have a diastasis, they are still a person that is worthy of care, love and respect. Um, so, you know, just reminding people about that because all the marketing is fear-based and that's why I'll be putting out my, my DRA project as a donation only thing. I'm going to have a recommended amount that I think that uh, professionals should pay. But if anybody is a patient and they want access to that information, I don't care what you donate. If you can't afford it, fine. Do whatever you need to do. But it's not going to be, finances won't be getting in the way of you getting good information because there's too much fear-based stuff out there. Too much, way too much. So that's number one. Number two, you gotta, you got to progress. you got to stress to progress. you got to load the sucker. If you don't load people, they're not going to adapt. And we know that if you don't load people at least about 70% of their 1RM, they're not, you're not going to get much in the way of change. Um, you, you're going to get motor control changes, which is great if they have to learn a new coordination. 
But you know what? People can learn a new coordination literally in seconds. So, you know, test it. And if they've got it, move on. Um, work by principles, not by recipes. And the principle for me is, can you demonstrate control over the anterior abdominal wall? If the answer is yes, then I load you as much as I can and teach you when you start uh, fatiguing out and you can't control that anymore. That's kind of like giving an athlete top end sets, right? And then we wave them down into lower, um, lower intensity exercise. So that might be a coordination drill. It might be a movement drill. It might be a, a teamwork positioning sort of drill where they've got to work with other people and get timing right on when to sprint and when to run into space and the rest of it. But you're not, you're not developing this speed. You're developing something else while they're physically recovering. And so, you know, we go through the waves and then you, you peak them at the right time. That's the same sort of thing. You know, you can't have somebody doing max contractions to fatigue day in and day out multiple times a day. That's just not going to work out, right? That doesn't follow the principles of science. So, yeah, do those sorts of things. You've got to get them as strong as, as, as you can, as opposed to how little strength work can I give them that will still get the result we look for. So we work within the same thing, which is asymptomatic um, functional movements. Now, if I keep them asymptomatic, but I, I teach them how to live on the line, they're going to progress more easily and quickly than if I give them the bare minimum, right? I've seen people that they've been doing these itty bitty exercises for five years and they're frustrated that things haven't gotten better. Now, inside my head, I might be going, well, no shit, Sherlock, right? Because you haven't loaded it and nobody has guided you to load it. But your discipline and commitment, I recognize. You've been trying to do everything that you've been told and you've been trying to do that to the best of your ability and the effort shows. So now is the time to move forwards. I've done the assessment today and I can tell you that all of the work that you've done for the past five years, and who knows, maybe you weren't ready yesterday, but you are ready today. And let's move forward from today. And maybe you, maybe I give you too much and you're not quite ready for that. That's okay too, because we can always bring it back and then we'll go back through again. And so just, you know, lots of people feel like they waste their time, but really what's happening is that um, nobody's really giving them the guidance of the principles of how to progress and regress because sometimes people are just tired. And if you're tired, your performance is going to suffer. I've had people come in and go, I did so well this week. And then yesterday I could only do half the exercises and I couldn't do any more than that without doing the reps in, in a way that, that uh, we talked about that I shouldn't do it. So, Okay, what do you think that means? I don't know that I'm getting weaker. Do you think that's what it means? I guess not. I was able to do it. Yeah, I don't know. So what happened yesterday or what happened the day before? And then they figure it out. Actually, I was really stressed and, you know, I, the, the baby got up at 3 a.m. and normally she wakes up at 7 a.m. So, yeah, I was up a lot more and I was tired and... I did have that big presentation that I've been stressing about. Oh yeah. Okay. Maybe I was stressed out. So what do you think you could do? Oh, why don't I see how I go today? Why don't I see how I go tomorrow? Cause it's the weekend tomorrow. See how that goes. I think that's a really good idea. All right. And you're coaching them on how to take care of themselves. Cause I could have told them straight away that they were stressed and I could have told them that it's okay. You're going to be fine. See what it's like tomorrow. But if you teach them how to come up with the answers themselves, you know, they don't need us. And so you, you, uh, you train them up so that they don't need you, but you treat them so well that they want to come back and see you. Awesome. Um, other things for diastasis, 3d, 3d motion. My goodness. Like, I mean, we can, we can focus on the flexion extension because that's, you know, um, but 
the anti-rotation stuff, the rotation stuff, the side bending stuff, the 3D combinations that people do in everyday life, you got to train them and don't wait for them to qualify. They're not going around squatting, picking up every single piece of Lego that's there. They're just bent over and twisting and keeping their feet in place. Teach them how to do that. Teach them how to do things like everyday life. And, you know, we've got a real opportunity with um, having online consultations right now because we can see what they look like in everyday life. Show me how you pick up those Lego because I don't have Lego with me in the clinic. All right. And so people, people tend to do things perfectly in the clinic for you or the way that they think they should. Whereas when you watch them in their own home, things look a little bit different sometimes. With kids running around in their own context. Yeah. Time. So we get an awesome opportunity. We walk in uninvited to their home, right? And we can see things in action in that actual context. So, and it's even invited. How's that? There you go. <laughs> That's awesome. So, Anthony, that was so much valuable information. I really appreciate this. So, especially at this time, we've got some really practical tips for listeners out there on telehealth. We busted a few myths. We've gone through a few misconceptions on common female athlete pelvic floor dram issues. And I'm sure we'll, we'll be catching more of you in the coming weeks. So if we were to find out more information about you, where can our listeners find you, Anthony? Yeah, um, Physio Detective is the easiest way to find me. The Women's Health Podcast on Facebook, we're doing our podcasts live at the moment. So we're putting them out, but um, it's got a website as well, womenshealthpodcast.com. Um, and the mentoring program that I have got going, which is just a different way of thinking and taking the three years that it took to change the way that I was working and thinking. Um, yeah, I put that into a masterclass of uh, three months, 13 weeks, and it's actually perfect for right now because uh, if you do absolutely everything in the masterclass program, what you end up with is uh, at least 26 exercise videos, 13 short talks, six minute talks, video analysis that you can use, um, your, your clinical reasoning will be challenged and, um, you know, just the stream of consciousness writing and how to turn that into a blog as well um, and how to reflect on what you're doing and, and just changing the way that you're thinking. It's a beautiful process. It's really fun. It's really intense, but um, yeah, look out for, I, I talk about uh, the way that I work, uh, it's going to be coming out next weekend. Um, so yeah, it should be fun. It's being announced tomorrow, I think tomorrow or Monday. Awesome. Depending on where you're listening from. So that's, that's, that's really it. cool. And I'm, I'm excited to see all the, the future content. And one of the great points that I'll just reiterate is taking the time to reflect. I think that's what gave you the clinical growth. Those, those years ago and it's, we've got all the time to reflect now. So might as well make the most of it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I'm busy. I'm actually working harder than I've worked in a long, long time. So yeah. Awesome. Anthony, I'm sure there'll be another time and thank you so much. And until, until next time, keep up the great content and discussions. Thanks very much, Daniel. Thanks for your support. And thank you to the knowledge exchange for having me on the podcast.